if you're taking notes, I'm, I'm going to give you kind of a quick review um, of our series up to this point. We are actually wrapping up our series called The New Rules of Resolution. Uh, this five facts that change the way that we change. And I'm so, uh, so thrilled with what God has done through this series. I think that he's spoken some, some incredible truths. I know it's in my life, and I believe it's a, to many other lives as well. So we looked uh, way, way back the first Sunday in January. We looked at the first fact, and that was this, that it's not achieving, it's receiving, right? Or excuse me, first fact was it's not a project, it's a process. That was, that was week two. So the, the first fact is it's not a project, it's a process. Change isn't just a, a one-time thing. It's not a, hey, I've got this goal, I'm going to do this for 30 days or P90X or whatever. But godly change is a process that continues to carry out. Then week two, we did see it's not achieving, it's receiving. That in the normal everyday life of the world, you achieve and then you receive. Your company makes $14.6 million and then you get a bonus. You achieve, then you receive. But there is an exception, I before E, except after C. The exception is in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, we receive and that enables us to go out and achieve. We received him first and foremost. Fact number three, we saw that it's not trying, it's training. And, and we looked at a guy uh, named Russell Wilson, uh, who's kind of an important person in my life right now. If you missed the, the Super Bowl last Sunday, uh, I'm not going to rub that in too much. The Bronco fans except Wendell, ha-ha. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Man, it was a beautiful game. It was a wonderful game for me. But, but we saw how uh, this man, this quarterback, has this incredible character, this incredible testimony and walk with God, but that he's all about training. And it's his training that enables him to carry out what he is doing on the field. And as Christians, we aren't just called to try to eliminate sin, to try to accomplish something for the glory of God, to try to be a witness, but we're called ultimately to a day-to-day act of training. And then last week, Week number four, uh, and, and today we're going to kind of really piggyback off of this. We're going to spend a little bit more time reviewing last week to set up this week. But we saw how it's not a competition, it's a calling. It's not a competition, it's a calling. The Christian life is not a competition, but a calling. Colossians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, starting in verse 6, is, is our main passage for this series. And we've really focused in on two verses, but we've looked at five verses in total. And I want to review all of those verses with you. But Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to what? Live in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in him as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue, 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 day after day. It's a process. It's a process. Continue to live for him. No. Continue to live in him. When we live in him, we will automatically live for him. But we're not aspiring to to do things for him. We're aspiring to be with him, to have intimacy with him, to have relationship with him. So continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in him as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And it's amazing passage. I hope that you've taken the time to dedicate that, not just to memory so you can quote it for your pastor who's annoying because he's pushed the same verse on you for five straight weeks, but so that it's in your spirit, so that it's something that, that you'll be able to call upon as you need to change throughout your Christian life. Uh, but verse 8 goes on to say, See to it that no one takes you captive 
through hollow and deceptive philosophy that nobody leads you astray, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the deity lives in bodily form. So in Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of that power, all of that magnificence, all of that incredible, majestic beauty dwells in bodily form, in the form of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Godhead is right there in Jesus. And then verse 10 tells us this, and you have been given fullness in Christ. Look at your neighbor and say, you've been given fullness in Christ. You've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. So thereby last week we established that since Jesus is the head over every authority, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that his name, everything comes under his rule and authority. He's that rule. And since in him the fullness of God's power dwells there, and then he says, hey, you dwell in me and I dwell in you. My power dwells in you. What we discovered is that we don't have to compete with anybody. We don't have to work to be approved by anybody or to prove anything to anybody because the one who matters, in fact, the only one who matters is already approved of us. Winter Olympics started this week, and they're giving away a lot of medals. And, and you know, the, the classic thing, people get the gold medal, they bite it. I don't know how that started, but that's kind of a thing. they got to test it, make sure it's legit, I guess. They want to see, see the weight of it. That medal is going to pass away. That gold is going to rot. It's going to deteriorate. Their name may be written in a history book for, for a decade, for a hundred years, for a thousand years. I don't know how long it's going to be until Jesus returns. But at some point in time, that record will be forgotten. That gold medal will rot. That person will die. That body that they strived so hard for to, to accomplish that incredible goal, it's going to pass away. But God is giving away medals that aren't going to rot that aren't going to decay. He's giving away approval that is going to last forever. And so he's the only one whose approval we need to work for, but we don't even need to work for his because he gave it to us anyway. And so since we have that, we don't have to compete. We don't have to compare. What we discovered is that the death of contentment is the point of comparison. I lose contentment when I begin to look around and see what everybody else has, what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is experiencing what everybody else has been blessed with. That's when I lose my contentment. But because I'm complete in him, I don't have to compare myself to anybody. And neither do you. You are complete. You are full in Jesus Christ. So I only escape the captivity of comparison, that, that hollow and deceptive philosophy, when I have an awareness of my fullness in Jesus. God does not measure my life based on what I do, but based on what I do with what he has given to me. So that's the cliff notes of last week's message. If you missed it, I encourage you, go to citychurchob.com, check out the podcast, go to iTunes, check out the podcast. It just it, powerful, powerful truths about how it's not a competition. It's a calling. And what I want to do today is I really want to give you part B of that message. Last week, we, we laid out the foundation of why we are not in a competition, why we need to quit comparing ourselves to one another, why we're approved in him. Uh, but there's a, a natural question that last week's message raises, and I want to address that question today. And I think it's probably, for many of us in this room, is maybe the most important question of life post-salvation. Most important question of life is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? How am I going to respond to Jesus? Most of us have made that response. Most of us have, have made him Lord of our life and have received him. So I believe the next most important question after that is this. What is a calling? 
But if it's not a competition, it's a calling, how do I know what my calling is? How do I know what God wants me to do? Uh, as a pastor, this question gets asked to me over and over and over again in so many different ways. What is my calling? How do I know how to pursue my calling? How do I know what God wants me to do? What has God put me on this earth for? What is the purpose of my life? I don't know if you've ever wrestled with those questions, but I imagine most of us in this room at some point in time have. So I want to give you today four facts about your calling. Four things that you need to know that that are going to address what I believe are many of the misconceptions about calling and are going to empower you to find what God has you for, uh, what what he has for you, what he's calling you to. And so what I want to do is I want to press pause right here, and I want us to pray. And I'm going to pray for you that as I speak today, that it's not me speaking, that it's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, uh, that, that if you've already discovered your calling, that God would use this message to help propel you in that, to, to help push you uh, to, to the place that he is calling you towards. If you have not discovered your calling, I'm believing, God, that this message is going to help you to unravel that mystery, to decode what he has for your life so that you can begin to walk out his purpose for you, not 20 years from now, but right now, today. So if you would join me in prayer, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask you just right there at your seat, just begin to go before God for yourself. Father God, I thank you for your people. God, I thank you for your church. God, I thank you for men and women that Jesus died for. God, we celebrate that. We thank you that we don't have to prove anything to anybody. They don't have to compete with anybody in this room. They don't have to compete with me because of what Jesus has done. We are already approved. But God, because it is not a competition, it is a calling. Lord, I ask that through these next 30 minutes, You would take these words, you would take these facts and help us to to discover what you are calling us to. God, that you would help us to discover what you've created us for. That you would help us to discover those dreams and those visions and those things that you've placed within our heart. Lord, what, are you, what is your purpose for us in, in Olive Branch? What is your purpose for us in Memphis? What is your purpose for us in South Haven? What is your purpose for me today? Lord, I pray that you would use this message to, to answer those questions for people, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them so clearly that they would not hear me, but they would hear you today. We thank you, God, for for lives that are going to be different as they discover the incredible calling you have for them. Thank you for all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. I want to start this look at calling today with a very important question. What good would you do in the world if you had perfect circumstances. What good would you do in the world if you had perfect circumstances? You had unlimited finances. You had no one to answer to. You didn't have a boss. Maybe that means you didn't have a spouse. Don't write your spouse out of the picture. But, but you didn't have to answer to anybody. You didn't have to be accountable to anybody. You had unlimited resources, unlimited time, unlimited energy. You had perfect genetics. You, you were built to do that thing, that dream that's in your heart. How would you take those perfect circumstances and do good for the world with them? What would you do if you had perfect circumstances? Well, here's the truth. Most of us come to a point in time in our lives where we either say this or we think this or or our life reflects this in response to we see a need. There's an earthquake in Haiti. And it's like, oh, man. If I could, I would go spend three years loving on orphans and nursing these kids back to health and building orphanages. And, man, my heart just goes out to them and my heart breaks. And I've been in that place where we see a need. And it's like, man, if only I could do something about it. But I can't. I got a mortgage. I can't. 
I've got a job. I can't. I've got this, 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 and this. And then we say something like this. Man, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't, right? You've heard that phrase. Maybe you've said that phrase. I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, will you give me a house? And the response to that person who asked you that question is, I would if I could, but I can't. So, no, uh, not going to happen, right? Man, we, if, if I could, I would, man, I'd give all of you a house. Man, that'd be awesome. we just have a, a little city church subdivision. That'd be what's up. It'd be great. we just have church together every day, small group of somebody different's house. It'd be awesome. God has not blessed me with that position. So I would if I could. But I can't, so I won't. What a terrible way for Christians to live their life in Christ in response to the desires that God places in our heart, in response to the calling that God places on our life. Man, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. And you see, this is the preset response of so many of Jesus' followers. When God begins to call them to something, when God begins to to bring them to a place of here's what I want from you, when they begin to discover the need all around them, I'll respond so many times, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. Chuck Swindoll, incredible man of God, said this, and this is really going to kind of form the foundation for our message today. He said, if you cannot do the good that you would, I've been there most of the time, I cannot do the good that I would. He said, if you cannot do the good that you would, do the good that you can. See, we're going to flip the script today. Instead of, here's what I would do, man. If, if I had the opportunity, I would go to this nation. If I had the opportunity, I would build this homeless shelter in our city. If I had the opportunity, I would do this, 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 and this. I would meet these needs. I would handle these problems. I would fix this thing. I would stop this atrocity. Instead of I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. We're going to flip it to, okay, I can't do that thing that I would, but here's something that I can do. If you cannot do the good that you would, do the good that you can. And that's going to be the foundational paradigm shift that we need to make to begin to discover what is God calling us to today. Fact number five, today's message is this. It is not what you would. It is what you can. The truth of what God has for you in 2014, the truth of what God has for you in, in your family, at your workplace, at your school, on your campus, in your community, is it's not about what you would do. It's about what you can do. And I guarantee you, you can do something. God has something for you to accomplish when it comes to your calling in Christ. We've established it as not a competition. It's not what you would do, it's what you could do. And or it's not what you would do, it's what you can do. It starts with where you are and what you have now. So we, we have this question of calling. I'm going to give you four facts about calling, four things that are going to help you to discover what God is calling you towards. First one is this. Your calling this morning, your calling of God is active. It is not passive. 
Your calling and my calling is active. It is not passive. Last week, we talked about how one of the most important things that you can do for your young person, for your teenager, for your child, is to introduce them to discovering and embracing a calling on their life and how that calling is going to protect them from straying off into all the junk that the world has to offer because that calling is going to give them a focus, it's going to give them a purpose, it's going to give them something to strive towards. And that's not just for your young person, that's for you, that's for me. We all need to embrace the calling that God has for us is going to keep us from sacrificing what God has for us on the altar of contentment or fulfillment or comfort. But the most dangerous thing that you can do once you discover that you have a calling is to outsource the completion of your participation in that calling, is to think that, well, since God has called me, since he has preordained me to something, since he has prepared things for me and it's not a competition, I don't have to prove anything to anybody, I'm just going to kick back and I'm going to watch a little more TV. I'm just going to hang out because God's already got this under control because God is sovereign and he's moving and he's in control and he's going to make stuff happen for me. I have no need to read my Bible. I have no need to worship him. I have no need to get closer to him because God already loves me and accepts me. And if that's your response to the truth that the same grace that saves you is the grace that's going to propel you forward in your faith, the truth is that you've missed the point drastically because once you understand your destiny is in the hand of God it makes your decisions more important not less important see when we discover that God has a destiny for us that he's predestined us to things it kind of can bring this sense of relief well hey it's supposed to happen whatever happens happens kind of this attitude that we can get but it shouldn't bring just a sense of relief that hey I don't have to compete it should bring a sense of responsibility God's put me here for something important. God's placed a value on my life. God is calling me to something. And if it's that important to him, it should probably be pretty important to me. I want to take you today to Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at a man named Gideon. Uh, I've had to resist from preaching on Gideon multiple times in the past year. I've got a series that I've banked, that I've been looking forward to, that, that I think I'm going to get to get into in, in March or April uh, of this year on Gideon, and we're going to really dive down into Gideon. And so I've been avoiding Gideon for months. Uh, we did the God of the Underdog series, one of the best chapters in the book, the God of the Underdogs, is on Gideon. One of my favorite underdogs was Gideon, and I was like, no, i got to resist the urge to preach on Gideon, because they're going to get tired of hearing about Gideon. But What I'm going to do today is we're going to give you just a little bit of a taste of what's coming up here in a few weeks in our upcoming series on Gideon. But but I think it's really, this story is going to build a great foundation for us as we discover God's truth about calling. A calling is active, not passive. Everybody say active. Now let's say it like we mean it. It's not a passive word. It's active. Everybody say active. active. There we go. You guys are good. That was, I thought I was going to have to do that like four times. Well done. All right, so what's going on here is the Israelites are being oppressed by the Midianites. The the Midianites have come in. uh, They're stealing from them. They're raiding them. They're preventing them from trading. Uh, They're just under this massive oppression. And we're going to see an angel of the Lord. Some Bible scholars believe actually Jesus himself in a pre-carnate state appears to a man named Gideon. Judges chapter 6, starting verse 11, says the angel of the Lord, an angel in that, uh, actually in, in... the Hebrew all the way through, angel means messenger. So the messenger of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. She's been around for a while. Uh, 
sat under the oak and ophir that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So, jo- so Gideon is down in a wine press threshing wheat. And if you know anything about wheat and threshing it, you know that you don't go down to thresh wheat. You go up. You go up on a hillside, up on a mountainside. Because what you do is you throw the wheat up in the air, and the wind comes and it blows away the chaff, the part of the wheat that you don't want, and the heavy part of the wheat, the good part of the wheat, would settle so you get what you need out of it. But he's not doing it out on a mountainside. He's not doing it on the hillside. He's not doing it in public. He's down hiding in a wine press out of fear from his oppressors, the Midianites. So verse 12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, stud muffin. The Lord is with you, big daddy. Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Man, that's an awesome thing to hear. I have never had an angel appear to me that I know of. Uh, I've definitely never had an angel appear and say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Just anytime you want to do that, God, I'm good. I mean, I'm, I'm open to, the, to receiving that. That's an awesome, man, that just gets you fired up, ready to take over the world, right? Uh, and it would make sense for him to appear to, to Gideon in this moment if Gideon is standing defiantly against the oppressors. If he's on the hillside and he's got blue face paint on and he's screaming, freedom, right? Like if he's William Wallace, okay, you appear to William Wallace and you say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's not William Wallace. Gideon's a coward. Gideon is cowering in fear, and we're going to find out how much of a coward he really is. We're going to see how little Gideon really thinks of himself. But understand this. God sees you differently than you see yourself. And that's not our message today. That's in our series coming up. We're going to unpack that later on and develop it. But you need to know God sees different things in you than you see in you. Verse 13 says, But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us. He's put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love this exchange because the Lord shows up to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's response is, here's all the things that you've failed. If you're really with me, Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? Gideon responds with a cop-out. And then he responds with questions. He begins to question God. I don't know if you've ever made that statement. Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask a few questions for God. Me me and God are going to have a little chat. i got to find out why this happened. You're not going to do that. When you get to heaven, you're going to fall down on your face and weep and praise. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm in the presence of God. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to have any questions for God except one. Why did you let me in? How is it even possible that I get to be in your presence? And maybe after an eternity and another eternity and eternity, 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 maybe then I'll get to some questions. Whatever happened to my dog? You know, like maybe then I'll get to talk about some practical things. But, but there's going to be a long period of time where I'm not worried about anything except, oh, my gosh, I'm in God's presence. And I'm not worthy. But he let me come into his presence anyway. But Gideon begins to question God. And I, and I love God's response. I love the, the, the angel's response here. He ignores him. He doesn't respond to any of it. He doesn't address, here's, well, you know what? I do have some explaining to do. I want to make sure you understand where I've been throughout this process. He skips right past all that. Gideon gives a cop out. The Lord responds with a command. Go in the strength that you have, and we are going to use you to rescue your people from the hand of Midian. 
Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go on the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? There's something that God is sending you to. There's a place that he wants you to go. He's not content with you in the place that you are. He's got a better place for you to go. He's sending you. Verse 15, but Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. We begin to see how lowly Gideon really feels. This is a dude who struggles with some massive insecurities. This is a guy who does not see anything significant in himself, and yet God is going to use him to overcome an army that numbers in the hundreds of thousands with just 300 men. God's going to use this little insignificant person who thinks he's from the worst family, and he's the worst one in his family. He's going to use him for something magnificent. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So Gideon's in a cycle of cop-out and comparison. Did you see that? Did you catch the comparison? He begins to compare, well, my family's not as good as all the other families, and I'm not even as good as the people in my family. He falls right into the trap that the enemy tries to bring God's people into time after time after time to look around and say, I don't have this gift. I'm not as strong as he is. I'm not the leader that so-and-so is. I don't have the, the credibility that this guy does. I haven't accomplished as much as he has. He falls right into comparison, and God responds not to his cop-out or his comparison, but he responds with a command and a calling. And I believe that for you today and for me today, God has a command and he has a calling. Uh, when I worked at Church on the Move, which is the, the church that I interned for in Oklahoma, they, they had a statement that was so important for us about ministry. And ministry is not just working for a church. All of us are called to ministry. In fact, in our uh, Next Steps class, when you go through uh, part four, we, or actually part one, we actually tell people, here at City Church, we believe that every member is a minister. I am not Troy Souden, the minister of City Church. I'm the pastor of City Church. I have a specific ministry, but we are all ministers. We're all called to ministry. And so at Church on the Move, they had this statement that, that's so important. They said that ministry is spelled W-O-R-K. Ministry is spelled work. And sometimes ministry doesn't feel super spiritual Sometimes it doesn't feel like, man, I am just walking in the presence of God day after day after day. Sometimes ministry is just work. Sometimes it's just showing up. Sometimes it's just serving somebody. Sometimes it's just humbling yourself. Sometimes it's making copies or doing something that seems super insignificant, washing a toilet or changing a diaper. But those things are ministry, and ministry is spelled W-O-R-K. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says very, very famously, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God's prepared something for you. He's prepared some good works for you. He's prepared some work for you. It's good work, but it's work. We like to think that work's a four-letter word, which it is. But we like to think that it's a bad thing. We like to think it's, man, work, if it's really work, if it feels like work to you, it's not really God. Don't super spiritualize that. It's going to feel like work sometimes. There are going to be times where it's not comfortable, where it's not easy, and you're just going to have to push through and do what God's called you to do, even though it's not necessarily the thing that you want to do in that moment. It's not always easy. So here's what I would tell you today. Work brings sweat. Sweat is perspiration. So my response to God's preparation is that I must bring 
some perspiration. My response to God's preparation is I must bring my perspiration. God's prepared me for something. He's prepared works for me. He's called me to something. And my response to his preparation is I bring my perspiration. I must respond with work. And that's what Gideon is about to do. He doesn't know how much work he's going to have to do. He doesn't know how much God's got for him, but he responds to what the angel has told him to do. I'll say this also before we move on to the next point. We're going to move very quickly through the last three points. The people who God greatly uses don't necessarily have the best of everything. They simply make the best of everything. I'm going to say that one more time. The people who God uses greatly don't necessarily have the best of everything. They simply make the best of everything. In fact, I'd say most of the time God doesn't use the people who have the best. Most of the time God uses the people who have the least, who are the lowest, who seem the most unlikely because he gets more glory when our weaknesses are evident. So the people that God uses greatly, and I hope that you've got a desire to be used greatly by God. The people who God uses greatly are not necessarily the people who have the best of everything, the best gifts, the best resources, the best relationships, but it's simply the people who make the best of everything. It's not, oh, but but my big brother's so much smarter than me, but I don't have a housekeeper like she does. I don't have the time in my schedule like he does. Well, pastor, if I had two hours to study God's word every day, I'd do it too. No, you wouldn't. You'd watch more TV. Right? Like, we like to look at it and say, well, I just don't have this, 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 and this. And we make all these excuses and all these cop-outs. But the truth is, the people God uses greatly are the people who make the best of what they have. Mother Teresa said this. We'll close on this point with this quote. It's not always possible in this life to do great things, but we can always do great things, or small things, with great love. It's not always possible to do great things, but we can always do small things with great love. Your calling is active, not passive. It's going to take some work. You're going to have to put some sweat into what God has called you to do. Second point, your calling is plural, not singular. Your calling is plural, not singular. You see in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, the Lord answers, I will be with you and you'll strike down all the Midianites. So he gives Gideon this incredible calling. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what I've chosen you for. Here's what I'm going to use you to accomplish You're going to strike down all the Midianites alone. No. You're going to strike down all the Midianites together. I'm using you to lead. I'm using you for a specific piece of the puzzle. But there is a team that I'm going to assemble. There is a group that is going to come with you. Your calling is not singular. It is plural. This is why I believe that the church is so awesome. This is why I've given my life to building up the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are not just called to something as individuals. We are called to something together. I may have the most visible role at City Church. I may be the person that people most closely associate with this church. But I cannot accomplish anything in my calling if it wasn't for every one of you sitting out there walking and working in your calling. My calling is not any more important than anybody else's calling in this room. We are called to something together. You are not called to to watch me do ministry. We are called to minister together to reach a hurting, dying, and lost world together. Together, together, together. Our calling is not singular, but it is plural. This is why Satan hates the church. This is why Satan is constantly looking for ways to tear churches down, to sow gossip and discord and deceit within the walls of a church, to separate the people because he understands more than anyone the power when God's people work together. 
Our calling is not singular. It is plural. The thing that I'm a part of matters more than the part that I play. The thing that I'm a part of matters more than the part that I play. So I need to embrace any part that God gives me in his story, in his calling, in his will. I'm not going to talk too much about the Seahawks today, but this illustration is too perfect to pass up. Uh, Super Bowl champions get rings, and they get to wear this ring for the rest of their life. And the NFL plays, pays for 70 Super Bowl rings. There's 53 people on an active roster, about eight people on a practice squad, coaching staff, etc. So there's the NFL plays for 70 for, for those people. Well, Paul Allen, the owner of the Seahawks, made the decision before they ever went to the Super Bowl that if the Seahawks win, he's buying Super Bowl rings for every member of the organization, all the way to the top down to the girl that answers the phones when you call to order a ticket from the Seahawks offices. She's getting a Super Bowl ring just like Pete Carroll, the coach, just like Russell Wilson, the quarterback. Everybody is getting a ring. And I thought this is such a beautiful illustration because there are people on the Seahawks whose role is much more visible and much more notable than the girl who answers the phone or the janitor in the offices, but every one of them gets a ring because every one of them had a part to play. And God's kingdom works the same way. You're going to get the same reward, just like Dwindle's offering illustration. Some of us showed up for 12 hours. Some of us showed up for six hours. Some of us are going to get saved two minutes before we die. God's going to give the same blessing, the same reward, come into my kingdom. And yes, there are going to be specific rewards, specific jewels, specific rings in our crown based on what we have done. But the most important ring, the most important honor that we can get is the presence of God. And we're all getting that together because our calling is singular. It's not singular. It's plural. Point number three, your calling is present, not future. Your calling is present, not future. Most people think of calling in terms of what God wants me to do someday what God has for me one day, what God wants me to be when I grow up or when I finish my education or when I get out of debt or when my kids are out of the house or once I've done this, 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 and this, then one day God wants me to be that. But I don't believe that your calling is simply just future. In fact, I believe that your calling, anything that your God is calling you to in your future is going to be connected to something he's got you doing right now. And if it's not, then you're missing it. You're not walking in what God has for you today. Everything God's ever called me to flowed out of what he had me in the season before. Before I became pastor at City Church, I was youth pastor at City Church. Before I became the youth pastor at City Church, I interned and was on staff at a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Church on the Move. Before I interned at Church on the Move, I interned at my home church in the youth ministry there. Before I interned in the youth ministry there, I served just as a leader, as a student in the youth ministry, which opened the door for my internship. Before I served as a leader in, the, in that youth ministry, I went to a camp. And I worked at a Christian camp, and I met some people that actually went to this church, and that's how my family ended up at that church. And before I went to that Christian camp, which is when I really discovered that God had a calling on my life in the future, I served in a youth ministry of six kids at a little bitty tiny Assemblies of God church in Forest City, North Carolina. And it was there in that youth ministry as a 15-year-old surrounded by five other teenagers that an adult saw my heart, saw what I was doing, and said, you know what, I think you'd be really good to serve at this camp. And I'm going to put in a recommendation for you. If you're interested this summer, I think you should check it out. And it was because that person saw me serving with 
five other teenagers that the whole process began to play out of God's calling on my life. You see, I served passionately before I even knew what my calling was. Because your calling ultimately is present, not just future. Does God have something ultimate that he's calling you to in the future? I believe so. Does God have a better place that he wants you to be in 10 years than you are now? Absolutely. But it's connected to what he has for you now. If you believe that your calling is to work with orphans in Africa, you dang sure better be working with some kids in Memphis. If you think that your calling is to preach, you better get in Kid City and start to teach a kid and develop that communication gifting. If you think that you have a calling towards this or towards that, there's something God has for you now, today, that he's calling you for to prepare you for the calling he has on your life. David was anointed king as a teenager. He didn't become the king for 40 years, but that doesn't mean his calling didn't start. His calling started right then. The day after he was anointed, he got sent to a battlefield and he killed a giant. God started using him immediately upon his calling, even though he didn't walk in the fullness of that calling for 40 years. God began to prepare him, began to use him, began to create in him the the character, the experience that he needed to use him in such a mighty way. So your calling is not just future, it is present. So quit saying things like, well, when I have kids, I'll do this. When my kids get out of the house... I'll do this. When we pay off these loans, I'll do this. Begin to serve God now. Begin to witness about Jesus now. Begin to be generous now. Begin to be used by God now. Begin to look at the opportunities around you now. Because here's the truth. The Satan is going to try and give you every excuse to put your calling off. Once you've discovered your calling, once you've received your calling, he's not going to come and steal that calling from you. He knows he can't. He knows he can't just tell you, well, that's not true because... You know what you heard from God. But what he can tell you is to wait. And what he does to believer after believer after believer is he gets them to put that calling on hold while it's just going to have to wait till next year. It's just going to have to wait until I do this. It's just going to have to wait until I accomplish this. It's just going to have to wait until this. And then you get so disconnected from your calling. Then he gets to come in and so doubt, am I even really called at all? Because I'm not walking in any of it. Your calling's today not future last point for us the last fact about our calling that we need to embrace number four is that your calling is a person not a place your calling is a person not a place in other words you're called to be someone more than you're called to do something you're called to be intimate with Jesus you're called to be a reflection of him in the world more than you're called to walk in this gift or that gift or this anointing or that anointing or this ministry or that ministry the ultimate thing that God is calling you to is to be like Jesus you're called to a person you're called to the person of Jesus you're called to his feet you're called to his embrace, you're called to relationship with him and the more that you become like him the more that you discover him, the more that you pursue him the more that he's going to use you and all these other things that he has called you for as well. Church, you're called to something. Your calling is active. It is not passive. Your calling is present. It is not future. Your calling is to a person. It is not simply to a place. And your calling is plural. It is not singular. As we wrap up our service today, as you probably noticed when you came in, we're going to take communion. I'm going to take communion for a couple of reasons. One, this is the end of our first series of the year, and I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to, to 
remember what Jesus has done. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated what God has done in the first 10 years of City Church. And I love celebrating what God's done at City Church. But even more than that, I love celebrating what Jesus did so I could be saved. And we're going to take communion to remember what Jesus has done. Remember his sacrifice. Remember his forgiveness. Remember how he washed us clean. But I also think it ties so beautifully into at least two of the four points in this message of calling. First of all, communion is, is corporate. It's something that we do together. It's not something we just do as individuals. It's something we do as a church. So our calling is, sing, is plural. It's not just singular. Secondly, and most importantly, communion brings us face-to-face once again with Jesus. See, we're called to a place. Or we're called to a person, not just to a place. So we're called to the person of Jesus. And so we're going to partake of communion here in just, 